Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Today, we're joined again by Kate Kelly, co-host of the Wonder Media Network podcast, Ordinary Equality. The first episode of season four is out now, and it's all about how to live and resist in a post-Roe world. You may remember Kate from a previous Majority 54 episode about the abortion debate, a very popular episode that people talk to me about all the time. She's an experienced reproductive rights advocate and a lawyer, and she's here to help answer the questions that y'all have sent in about Roe. Kate, thanks for being back. Yeah, thanks for having me. We live in very, very troubling times, so I'm glad glad to be here. And before we get into all of that troubling times, very serious stuff, you have to bear with us, Kate, as we talk trash. It's a new thing that we do here. Ravi, you have some trash to talk that originates from Staten Island, your place of rearing. Yeah, it is weird for the trash to originate from Staten Island because usually that's where it ends up. That's usually where it's final resting place. So uh, Fresco's landfill joke there. It's a deep cut. <laughs> that I got I got the joke, by the way. That's that's how uh, good of friends we are. So anyway, yeah. continue. Well, I feel weird always bringing these things up. It's such a serious week, but it's so, you know, they're there's always something serious going on in the world. And a man who takes himself very seriously is uh, former Mayor Giuliani, who was in Staten Island, and he was in a supermarket. And apparently, this is all on video now, some guy just kind of like tapped him, slapped him on the back or whatever. And Giuliani pressed charges. This guy was now charged with third degree assault. And Giuliani used some pretty dramatic language to describe what happened to him. He says he got hit as if a boulder hit him and knocked him forward a step or two. Super dramatic language. And then the video comes out. And honestly, people can watch this video for themselves. It's it's honestly something that a stranger could do if they're walking past you on the street, just if they need to get by you. Like, it was nothing. I don't know. This is just kind of like in line with our the right wing. They really are the snowflakes they accuse us of sometimes. Kate, go ahead. Feel free. Jump in if you like. <laughs> yeah. What do you say to that? Yeah, I don't. It's so interesting too because it they have this incredible knack at creating themselves as the victims of everything, and so it just it feeds into this narrative of like we're under attack, we're the victims of everything, people are after right. us, and they're like the opposite is true, but they're so good at creating that illusion. It's also like perfect projection, right? Because I think what the guy did is he walked by, he slapped him on the back and he said something to him about Roe and said something about, you know, like holding Giuliani responsible for uh, the lives of women that'll be lost and, you know, made some remark about it. Well, 
so the projection is, is that then what does Giuliani do? He depicts himself as the victim of violence, political violence, you know, just to say like, look, these people are politically violent. And it's like, we're literally in the middle of the January 6th hearings. <laughs> so it's kind of a tell. Unbelievable. I don't think, by the way, I, my, my theory on this is that I don't think Rudy Giuliani thought there was video, clearly. Yes. Yeah. It, it does make you wonder what else this guy has lied about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Up until now, I had no concerns. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to our friend Brett Kavanaugh, which I think there's another question of if this guy lied about one thing, what else did he lie about? But let's stick with the January 6th theme for a second, because with Giuliani, he was at the center of the, I forget what we call them, the sort of crazy forces. This is by Trump's own inner circle's definition of crazy, which means that we're talking about the craziest possible fringe of the right wing. Uh, Giuliani was part of the effort to continue to deny the election and to cheer on the events surrounding January 6th. There was a hearing yesterday, so we're recording this on Wednesday. There was a hearing, another hearing of the January 6th committee. It was like a special hearing where they brought in a key aide to Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchinson. And she had some interesting things to say. She talked about how the president said, quote, I don't fucking care that they have weapons, meaning the, the insurrectionists. They're not here to hurt me. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here, meaning let them into the Capitol. And then he had some kind of tussle with his Secret Service agent where he said, I'm the fucking president. Take me to the Capitol now. And when the Secret Service wouldn't, he lunged at the wheel at Secret Service agent Robert Engel. It's hard to say what any one of these revelations is going to do, but this did seem like a notable moment. They, this was so significant, this testimony, that they brought people back uh, from recess, I believe, in order to have this hearing. What do we make of that? Well, I think it also says a lot that they did it as a surprise and as a bit of an emergency. And I think that had a lot to do with the security of the witness, right? Mm. And there was a lot revealed in her testimony about, you know, witness intimidation that's going on with a lot of the people who, I mean, you know, she was given a note that was like, you know, President Trump reads every transcript and he knows you're going to be loyal, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think part of it was like, let's not give people time to try to get to her. That's pretty stunning, right? Like that we're like in Colonel Markinson, a few good men territory with this witness, like with any witness to testify before Congress against a former president that like we got to do it fast before people have any idea or otherwise physical harm may come to them before they testify. Like that's hard to get my mind around. Yeah, I, I think like the question, Kate, is at a time when there's so much going on, and obviously we'll talk about these recent Supreme Court decisions, we're kind of vying for the attention of the American people. These are very startling facts. Like, how do we make these salient in a way that actually moves people at the ballot box? I've been thinking about this a lot in general, both with Roe and what's going on with January 6th. I think like a lot of people, feel like this is all political theater. <laughs> like what's happening is entertainment and we're watching it, but it, it doesn't connect to our actual lives. It doesn't connect to real people who are going to suffer. It doesn't connect to the collapse of our democracy or the attempt at that. We need to our, ourselves, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, step away from constantly going back and forth on what is entertainment and, and take these issues seriously. So, yeah, I don't know that I have a solution other than this is not 
this is not entertainment. This is not political punditry. This is real. What that, because I've had that same sort of pondering and, and what I have come to is a stronger belief now than I have held at any point in this process that people have to go to prison because I frankly don't think that this is going to have an effect on the midterms, not not one that we're going to really notice and or that we'll be able to point to. I think if it does, it's nominal. What's the point of this? The point of this is to make it so that in the future, people don't try to use violence to take power in this country and that they don't attempt to do an end around of our laws in order to gain power. And so if they're not going to be punished at the ballot box, and I don't think that they are because people have, you know, day to day concerns about how much stuff costs and how much their wages are and that kind of thing and whether or not they're they have autonomy over their own bodies. Well, so if the hearings aren't going to have that effect, they got to have a consequence. And that consequence has got to be that these people who did these crimes have got to go to prison. And if that doesn't happen, there's not going to be a reason not to do these crimes in the future other than your own moral conscience, which I think, you know, clearly there's a lot of people who don't have one. I do think that there is there seems to be a lot of smoke there on the question of criminal charges here. I created a list the other day of just the possible legal exposure that Trump has just related to these hearings. And it's pretty significant. And I'll just talk about two of them. One is he was raising money for this electoral fund to fight the results of the election, like hundred plus million dollars that didn't seem to be used for that purpose at all. That seems like fraud. Uh, And then two is uh, his lawyer admitted that they were conspiring to violate the Electoral Count Act, which would be conspiracy to commit a crime. They, I think they seized the lawyer's computers or something recently. I think in the past week or two, the, the FBI did. So there does seem to be something going on here. I'm super curious to see what happens here. This would be the first time anything like this has happened with uh, a you know, former president facing this type of legal exposure. Obviously, Nixon is the closest approximation. None of us were alive during that period of time. And, and you know, he was able to duck responsibility by leaving office and receiving a pardon, which, at least for the time being, isn't an option afforded to Trump. Maybe that is something that could impact the ballot. You know, reporters and other people keep asking me, like, what do you want to hear from Democrats in November? And I'm like, I want to hear what Democrats did. It's June. <laughs> like the time between June and November is long. I want to hear what they did to solve the problem. And if there are real consequences for the people involved in January 6th, like that is something that I want to hear in November. If there are actual solutions implemented to the lack of, you know, reproductive rights and and healthcare access. That's what I want to hear in November. The January 6th committee is laying out the public like case against the Trump administration and Trump and the people around him. And Merrick Garland is alongside them, it seems, building a criminal case against Trump and the people around him. And I would say as somebody who's often been critical of some of these efforts, this seems like a really well-organized and persuasive case right now. And we'll see what comes out the other side of it from the Department of Justice. But so far, they're doing things right from where I'm sitting. So I'll give them a gold star for this so far. But let's go to the main event this week, which is unfortunately, obviously, the Dobbs decision came down 
last week. We're going to go through, our listeners have sent us a ton of really, really good questions here. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through one at a time and, and lean on you to answer it. Obviously, if we have if something to offer, we certainly will. Awesome. And so I'm going to go with our first question. And this is a question from Buffy via email. She said, Aloha. She's from Hawaii, which is great. By the way, Buffy, invite us for a live show there. Um, that would be a great <laughs> no thing kidding. to expense. Yeah, yeah. I'll sign up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She says, if SCOTUS has overturned Roe, can it still be codified into law by Congress? She says she lives in Hawaii, where we have the right to abortion written into our state constitution since 1970. And since SCOTUS has overturned Roe at the federal level, is there a risk of states being compelled to follow it? Thank you, Buffy, for the question. And I think it's important to keep in mind that Roe was protecting at the federal level all states from keeping abortion bans in place. It's not something that has to be followed. Like the Dobbs decision didn't say that abortion is illegal everywhere in the United States. The Dobbs decision is not a ban. So if you live in a state like Hawaii or California or New York for now, if you have additional protections under your state constitution that will continue to protect you and and you will continue to be able to get access to abortion in your state. That leads us to her first question of a federal ban. So there are federal legislators in the United States Congress who have openly advocated for a a federal abortion ban. They want to pass that into law. That is explicitly stated. That's not like the sky is falling. Oh, no. You know, that's that's the game plan. That's that's they've spoken openly about this. If, for example, the Republicans were to take the House and the Senate in the midterms or in the near future. And then, God forbid, a Republican presidential candidate regains the White House in the next cycle. It is possible that there could be a federal ban. And and now that Roe's gone, that's what they're going to be campaigning on because they've been like overturned Roe over. That's like the only thing they've had on the on their platforms for so long. And it's been the most salient vote getter for them. And now that they won, it's like, uh, what are we going to campaign on now? So it's it, it's incumbent upon them in their worldview to up the ante. And so that definitely will happen. We also have the current composition of the Supreme Court that would probably uphold a federal ban. And if they get unified control of government, I mean, it's not just a possibility like that's what they're going to do, right? Explicitly stated, that is the goal. That is the platform. That is what they will campaign on. Yes. Well, uh, that's depressing. The answers are depressing, but like we're not devoid of hope, right? Because the the inverse of this is true as well, right? If we if we can get a democratic control, do and you know obviously the filibuster, like we have democratic control, but we have the the issue of the filibuster. It's not as if they couldn't right now decide to you know say to hell with the filibuster and just codify. Yeah, totally. And and the Women's Health Protection Act or WIPA is a bill. I think they've taken four votes on it in the Senate. They're talking about taking, I think, a fifth vote in the Senate on WIPA, which has passed in the House, which would codify reproductive uh, rights and abortion access into federal law. So that that's a bill. It already exists. It's already passed in the House uh, and could hypothetically pass in the Senate. Of course, we know that nothing good happens in the Senate right now because of the filibuster. 
semester, almost nothing is getting done as far as progressive legislation. So, yes, they could absolutely also codify that. The question then is, would a federal law upholding abortion rights and access be upheld by this current Supreme Court? It's funny that you say that because our next question comes from Mickey, who says, my question, even if legislation was successfully passed regarding reproductive rights, wouldn't we expect that the Supreme Court would strike it down for whatever specious reason? In other words, as long as this court is in place, are we fucked? That's Mickey's question. Uh, Short answer, yes. (laughs) Uh, Long answer. The current composition of the Supreme Court is not great. But there are things that can be done about it. Are there is there the political will to unpack the court, a.k.a. add additional justices? I'm not sure, but that is possible. It is also possible, as you both know, uh, because I've talked about it so much to change the federal constitution. So the Equal Rights Amendment is an amendment that could be added to the federal constitution and could really create a new right. It would create a new right um, and would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. And that would be an entirely like a game changer for all of these cases, because these guys are originalists. And I say guys, uh, but that also includes Amy Coney Barrett, of course. And if the words are in the Constitution, they can no longer argue that substantive due process rights are not relevant or don't exist because it will actually be in the Constitution. So that there are things we can do, but they're pretty extreme and will take a lot of political will to get behind them. Let's play that out for a second, because what we have to realize is is that you know, unless we had some massive majority that we didn't expect in the Senate, in order to pass a law that, that codifies Roe, you're going to have to get rid of the filibuster, at least for that purpose, which means you will have generated the political will to do that, which means by the nature of having done that, you will have a makeup of the Senate that if it has the political will to to get rid of the filibuster for that, then it will also have the political will to unpack the court. So the two problems kind of are in the solutions are in tandem, right? The solutions are in tandem and both like a pretty high bar. But uh, but yes, I'm a little bit more optimistic that it would survive only because it would be hard to imagine the argument they would use to strike it down unless they fashion like a new due process argument on behalf of the unborn um, as they see it. And so obviously there are some forms of the right that are making that argument. I have not seen that from this group in particular, but I also think that there are parts of uh, the abortion question that are squarely within interstate commerce, like the medication, the so-called abortion pill. That would be really hard for the court to go after because it's a classic case of interstate commerce. Like you can imagine a world where people are doing, and this is already happening today, they're doing telemedicine to get the prescription, and then it's being mailed across state lines. And this is going to be a big area of law in the coming years. It's very possible that the the, the government already has that authority. At least uh, Garland and other members of the Biden administration are claiming that authority now to, to protect the ability of people to to order that medication and receive it across state lines. It's possible they already have it, but certainly if that were codified in the law, I think it would be really hard for this court, which I, I do not trust this court. To be clear, but I, I think it would what? be very hard for them. Yeah, it would be very hard for them to to strike that law down. I like that. I, I, I like, I, yeah, and I think medication abortion is certainly the frontier. Uh, already close to sixty percent before row uh, of abortions were done by medication in the U.S. So it's 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 going to grow. It's going to be the vast majority of abortions are going to be through pills, and pills, of course, 
if you can get a letter in the mail, you can get a medication abortion in the United States. And that will become, uh, like you said, a really hot topic. There's also an, another group called Aid Access and Aid Access provides pills no matter where you live. And if you live in a place where it's not legal to get pills, then you can meet with a, a European doctor for a telehealth visit and they'll send you the pills again, no matter where you live, because they're not afraid of being prosecuted in the Netherlands or wherever they're based. So, yeah, you can get abortion pills no matter where you live in the United States today. Um, and the last thing I'll say just to plug aid access is that you can also get advanced provision. So they they give people pills even if you're not pregnant, just in case. So you can get them in advance. There are too many people in this country who see every civil rights gain, every advancement for African-Americans coming at the loss to whites. This moment is so important to understand, not just in light of history, but in terms of the way history haunts. Welcome to History Is Us. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr. Join me in this six-part documentary podcast series as we journey through history to face the ugly truths at the heart of the American story. It's all history. It is a repeated conflict over who counts. Throughout this series, we explore who we are as a nation and what race might reveal about our current crisis. Listen to History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meachin Studio. Available now for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. The other day, I got a text from my neighbor, Jason, who, because of this show, started on the Athletic Greens train and really likes it. And he was like, hey, by the way, try it in your protein shake. Get another great use of Athletic Greens, Robbie. Yeah. And I just did some travel and I ran out and I could not get home fast enough to restock my supply. What is it you may be asking? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And they have over 7,000 five-star reviews and it's recommended by professional athletes. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. It's the first thing I do every single day. And that's all you need to do. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, let's, let's go to another question from Angie. She says, uh, my 19-year-old is gay and terrified that gay marriage is next on the chopping block. At this point, I cannot assure her it's not. How likely do you think that SCOTUS will ban it? I'll just lay a little context and then kick it to you, uh, to you Kate. So there's a difference of opinion here amongst three different blocks of justices here, at least three different blocks. So you have the majority opinion written by Alito in which he talks about this. There's this term of art called substantive due process. So basically... In our country's jurisprudence, the Due Process Clause of the Constitution uh, has a uh, it has its plain language, and then there's a meaning that we've gathered from it over time that includes the right to privacy, among other things. And Alito, in his opinion, says 
he acknowledges the existence of so-called substantive due process rights. So he, he, and, and in contrast to one of his colleagues, he does admit that there are such things as substantive due process rights, but he says that they only exist in cases where the right is deeply rooted in our nation's history. And this is a, an area that has been hotly disputed in, ever since the leaked opinion came out, which is what is deeply rooted. Now, he claims that abortion is a special case for many reasons, but it's hard to argue, and this is what the dissent points out, that gay rights, other sexual activity that was, uh, you know, Lawrence versus Texas and, and whatnot, like there's all sorts of things that are not, quote unquote, deeply rooted in our nation's history, at least in the way I would imagine Alito sees it, that many people think are next. And Clarence Thomas, in his concurrence, goes out of his way to say the quiet part out loud and be like, yeah, they are next. And he talks about Obergefell being next. So game, uh, same-sex marriage and sodomy laws, et cetera. Um, sodomy is such a weird like way to put it, but I, that's how I guess they put these in these legal cases. But Thomas is saying those rights are next. I actually think he's the only honest member of the majority on this because he's saying what he truly believes. So I'll kick it to you, Kate, just to say, I'm convinced that under this standard, that those uh, rights would be next, uh, and I'm hard, it's hard pressed to to trust that this court is really drawing a line with any coherence. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, with what Thomas said, he said, and should be done as soon as possible. <laughs> and so again, like when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. And they are telling us who they are. They are telling us where they're going in the future. There were a lot of people before the Dobbs decision came down, including myself, who thought like maybe it's smarter for them to be a little more incremental and say like, okay, Roe isn't totally overturned because then people will be confused and not freak out. Yeah, that's the Roberts approach. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like bit by bit. But now I'm realizing they are incremental. <laughs> like this is their incrementalism, which is strike down row completely is the first increment. And, <laughs> oh, man. And so that's actually again, that's not con- conjecture. Like you said, that's explicitly said in Thomas's opinion. I as a queer person, this is very serious and terrifying. And I think people need to buckle up and join together. And I think there have been a lot of there's been contention in different movements and not a connection, for example, between the abortion rights movement and the LGBTQ rights movement, although a lot of leaders in the repro movement are lesbians, queer people. I think there needs to be a lot more cohesion between the movements because now we have seen the writing on the wall. It's 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 literal writing and it's not on a wall. It's in an opinion like invalidate current marriages. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's just to wrap your head around. Yeah. 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 And this is where I get this is, I think, where you can be persuasive with people uh, who are a little bit skeptical, who are a little bit more independent or right leaning in your life is that the, the language I've used with people in my life is the language of just planning your life. Right. And and I think this gets to the credibility of this court. And so I'll, I'll wrap this into the next question, which is Vanessa who asks, if the Supreme Court justices lied under oath, is there any penalty or is it now okay for anyone to lie under oath? She's so frustrated. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll couch this in these terms. Most of these Supreme Court justices, when they were in front of the Senate, I'm not sure if it's explicitly lying, but it was pretty damn close. Courts in general should follow their, their past precedents. Again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. And all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent 
have to be considered. It is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Casey is precedent on precedent. Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question, but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Even Thomas said there was a right to privacy in 1991 when he was in front of the Senate. So if he said there was a right to privacy in 91, how is he saying now that there's there's no such thing as substantive due process rights? Where is that right to privacy coming from? And I would say Thomas, not to be too lawyerly about this, Thomas and Kavanaugh had really serious questions about their credibility at the time that they were under oath. And so, you know, once again, if you lied about one thing, did you lie about something else? But more importantly, and this is where I get to like the persuasion point, what I say to people in my life who are skeptical of Roe, which I think people totally find to, to look at Roe and be like, I don't fully understand this opinion. I, I totally get that. But I think what people do understand is that people have been relying on those rights. And therefore, whether you love the original opinion or not, I think most people are sensible enough to say, we've now lived our entire life with these rights. We don't want to get rid of them. But now we're totally beholden to the Supreme Court that you, we have no reason to trust them when they say that your rights, are the, the you know, right to gay marriage, uh, or even to have the sexual activity that you, you want in the privacy of your own bedroom is, is not even off limits at this point. So that predictability of your life is where I spend a lot of my time now to be like, look, like, forget about what that opinion said. Like, do you think that people should, those rights should be taken away today? And I think people get more sensible when you start talking there. Yeah. And, you know, these people are liars. I don't know why we're surprised. Like, these are lying liars who lied to get a lifetime appointment. Like, the left is always so naive. Like, it, it's just so funny to me. It's like, I can't believe they lied. <laughs> um, and it's like, of course they lied. This is the entire, this is their plan. This has been a decades long plan by the anti-choice movement. And there will be no consequences to to get back to her question. Um, I mean, technically, the U.S. House of Representatives has the authority to impeach a federal judge under Article 1 of the Constitution, but that has only ever happened one time in our entire history. Uh, and it was in 1804. So the House uh, can impeach and then the Senate has to vote to remove. Uh, that has to be by two thirds of senators. So no, that's not going to happen. And I think I, I understand the impulse to say like, ah, we should, you know, but the time to get rid of Kavanaugh and Amy Coney, Coney Barrett was before they were in the court. That time is not now. It, it's not going to happen. The Supreme Court has done the unthinkable repealing the landmark Roe versus Wade decision and stripping Americans of a fundamental right, abortion access. I'm Kate Kelly, the co-host of the podcast Ordinary Equality, alongside Jimia Wilson. On the newest season of Ordinary Equality, we ask, what now? What does resisting bans and seeking care look like in a world without federal protection of abortion access? How can we build community and support the most vulnerable? How are abortion providers in states where abortion was already severely restricted working around the system? Each episode will feature one story around one theme, often in one state, zooming in rather than zooming out. Tune in to Ordinary Equality wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, let's go to another question, a legal question here. This is from Erin. She sent an email asking, if a woman is forced to carry out a pregnancy, could she sue the state or even the father for damages and or to cover all the costs associated with said pregnancy? Hi, this is Jane Lockett. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I have lived through uh, in Illinois and in the South eras of illegal abortion. I also lived through the era where the only way you could get birth control pills was to be a married woman with your husband's permission. Um, I feel like the country is going backwards. I wonder, can there be a class action suit filed on behalf of women in America to support the rights of the 14th Amendment to ensure all women are going to have control of their bodies? I like creative legal solutions, <laughs> and I think we should be using all tools at our disposal. Do I think that's likely to succeed? Probably not. But I do like the idea of thinking about how to vindicate our rights. But at the end of the day, everyone on the left needs to fall out of love with the Supreme Court. <laughs> And we largely need to fall out of love with the judicial system being the solution to all of our problems. The right has been on a tear packing not only the Supreme Court, but courts at the federal and state level for decades. And so regaining that balance and neutral, competent judges is extremely important. Uh, but in the immediate aftermath of this decision, I don't feel optimistic that those types of cases will be successful. Although, again, I like a good creative legal solution. The only way through this is to completely defy unjust laws. Like there's there's no legitimacy with this decision. Uh, abortion access is a human rights issue and human rights, international human rights supersede anything that the United States Supreme Court decides. Again, like I said, if you can get a letter in the mail in the United States you can get a medication abortion up to 12 weeks of pregnancy, 10 to 12 weeks. People need to stop thinking about like how the law can save us and start thinking about how can we disobey these unjust laws and create a community that protects us. We have a bunch of questions about miscarriages and life-threatening situations. Yeah, my question is this, is that it's my understanding that uh, abortion can both prevent uh, a pregnancy coming to fruition, but it can also stop a potentially lethal ectopic pregnancy uh, or uh, sepsis after a miscarriage occurs. And my question is this, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy or sepsis, when the female has a serious chance of dying, what what kind of options do they have? Thank you. Hi, Jason, Ravi, and Kate. Um, I'm just calling. I'm from Missouri, lived in Missouri my whole life. Um, I'm a young, almost 23-year-old. I was recently diagnosed with epilepsy in the last year, and um, it's really made me wonder, like, what like would happen in the case of, you know, I do get pregnant and I would have to go off of, you know, down with this, ban would my neurologist because they feel like they have to because of the law would they make me pretty much come off of my seizure medications and risk my own health in order to have a child i'm a dirty 54 crew i live in a state where abortion is protected 
I'm currently and very happily 12 weeks pregnant. However, I travel throughout the U.S. for work, and I've been trying to figure out if I'll be able to get medically appropriate care should I miscarry in different states. It seems like in a lot of places, no one really knows what the law is going to mean and how it's going to be enforced. Is there somewhere where I can get information about how medical treatment is going to be affected in each state under their new abortion restrictions? From all of these questions, I can hear that it's a very scary time to be a pregnant person in the United States. And I hear that frustration and that anger and that, you know, people are terrified. And I just want to acknowledge that those are legitimate fears. And and I'm so sorry that that's happening to so many people. A lot of the confusion is what's generating these fears. So now that the federal law is no longer in place to protect abortion access, it's going to become like a hodgepodge and every state is going to be very different as to what they allow and don't allow. The first thing I will say is people should contact an organization called If, When, How. They have a legal hotline that you can call and ask legal questions about pregnancy and abortion. And so if you have specific questions, you you should call If, When, How and their legal hotline and we can link to that. In the case of a person traveling, medical care really does depend on where you go. And in even today, for example, in Catholic hospitals, uh, people don't know that one in six beds, hospital beds in the United States is in a Catholic hospital. And so, and, and also Catholic hospitals are some of the places, the only places where people can go. If, if the only hospital in your area is a Catholic hospital and you'd have to drive hundreds of miles to go somewhere else, then, then that's where you will end up having to get care. And Catholic hospitals do not and have not provided reproductive health care, even in the case where it endangers the health or life of the pregnant person. And that's always been the case because they have religious exemptions to providing that care. So, so even before the Dobbs decision, if you were to go to a certain city or a certain hospital, you may not be able to get care even if it's life-saving. If you are a person traveling and you're pregnant and you you miscarry, these laws don't outlaw miscarriage, which is a normal outcome for pregnancies and very, very common. But it's going to get difficult. It's going to get dicey. If you show up to a hospital and have a miscarriage, you might get questions about why you're miscarrying because there's actually no way for them to tell if a person has taken the abortion pills So if you take an abortion pills and for whatever reason, you know, it's very, very rare. But if you had to go to the hospital, you could just say you're miscarrying. You don't have to tell them that you took the pills and you shouldn't tell them to be clear. (laughs) I mean, right there, I think we've just provided value to people in this show because like I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's no way they can test you. There's no way that, that you can tell if they've taken the abortion pills. The outcome is the same as a normal miscarriage. And so if you go to a hospital after taking abortion pills, again, very rare. These drugs are extremely safe, safer than Tylenol, safer than a lot of drugs that you can get over the counter. But if there is a complication and you have to go to the hospital, you do not have to tell them. You you can just say, I'm having a miscarriage. I'm pregnant and I'm having a miscarriage. The end. You don't have to tell them why. Uh, there are a few questions that I'm just going to refer to that hotline that you described because there's, there's some legal questions here, like what happens if you donate to an abortion fund? Is that aiding and abetting abortion? Yeah, I mean, um, 
And let me just say something quickly about the entire point of these laws. (laughs) These laws are unenforceable. (laughs) It's not possible to investigate every person who gets abortion pills. It's a tiny package that can be mailed in a letter. But what they're trying to do is keep us from helping each other. They're trying to make us scared. And so for the the example of donating to abortion funds, it's impossible for people in Texas to find out that someone in New Hampshire uh, donated to an abortion fund or even people in your own state if you keep that information to yourself. But that's not the point of the law. The point of the law is to scare people and we should defy those laws. This is very similar to what they try to do on voter suppression by bringing cases, whether they're successful in prosecuting people and convicting them or not, bringing cases for people who register voters door to door, bringing cases against, you know, all this stuff. Uh, a lot of voter suppression is about perception. Like there are, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of voter suppression that are laws that really literally make it harder to vote. But there's also a lot that's just a lot of noise to make you think you're not going to be able to vote or you might get in trouble for participating in the democratic process. Of course. And for that, they only have to prosecute one person right. <laughs> and have a lot of stories about it. What they want is they want us to have to do interviews like this where we talk about, well, here's how you get an abortion still. And it seems really difficult and treacherous. Yeah, of course. And it's actually very easy. Again, you can order pills no matter where you are in the United States from Aid Access, Plan C Pills, other organizations and get them. And the funds specifically, the abortion funds, there's an abortion fund in every state and sometimes many. And uh, what they do is help people get access to train tickets, plane tickets, hotels, childcare. Like they actually fund what's necessary to get people cared no matter where they have to go. But those funds are going to be needing money. They ha- People are going to be have, having to travel hundreds of miles in many places going across multiple state lines. If you live in, if you look at the map, if you live in the middle of the country, it's not just the next state over. Uh, a lot of people are going to have to travel really far to get the care they need. Also, you can talk to your employer about whether or not they're going to provide funding for that kind of thing. I know that the cities of Kansas City and St. Louis right now are considering uh, bills at the city level to for uh, city employees to uh, provide stipends for if they have to travel for reproductive health care. Devin had asked us, uh, you know, how Dems should move forward politically. Hi, Jason, Ravi, and Kate. My name is Devin from San Diego, California. My question for Kate Kelly is a sensitive one about how Democrats should move forward politically on the issue of abortion. Because I'm a giant political dork over the years, I've spent a lot of time looking at the polling on abortion. And as I know, Kate already knows, it's complicated. But one thing that's clear is the vast majority of Americans do support legalized abortion in the first trimester, which is also when most abortions take place. So I'd like to know if Kate thinks if it would be a good idea for Democrats to start advocating for federal legislation to make abortion on demand legal in the first trimester at the federal level, so that's legal in all states, and uh, leaving later abortions up to the states. Oh, Dems. (laughs) <laughs> I, I had a feeling that was going to be your response. Oh, Dems. Um, yeah, there there are really, if the Democratic Party can get together like a really concrete solution, honestly, I you know, I'm a person who thinks there should be no restrictions on abortion access, particularly in later 
later in pregnancy because the the abortions that occur later in pregnancy are are a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage, but some of the most quote unquote sympathetic or dire cases where there's just huge consequences, including death uh, for the pregnant person. And so I don't think there should be any restrictions on abortion, but in a lot of European countries, for example, they have a totally different system. So it's like, uh, healthcare is free. Uh, healthcare is universal. Health abortions are easy to access, but they they limit. So they actually really limit it towards the first trimester or, or first or second. So like in European countries, we think of like, oh, everything is legal and free in Europe. No, they actually do have a lot of time restrictions on abortion in Europe. But again, it's safe. It's accessible. Anyone can get it. It's free. So if I would totally do that trade off. <laughs> like if we were going to implement some pretty some time restrictions on abortion but make it free and accessible and paid for by the government, fine. Great step forward and then of course make exceptions for dire cases. When people say codify Roe, isn't that what that would be? Because I mean based on the the way that the Roe opinion was laid out. Yeah, except for then also the like safe and universally available and free part. <laughs> Right, right. But I, I meant the 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 idea of like, yes. I mean, that's where the trimesters in the law came from, right? Exactly. And like, that is also stupid in my opinion, but, um, and my major critique of the Roe decision. But yes, that is already how it is. There are like these categories of when people think abortion is more morally sympathetic and, and when it's not. So as like an abortion enthusiast, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I don't hate that idea. What you're saying is you don't hate that idea because it's a lot better than what we're dealing with now. Of course. But what I also hear you saying is, hey, uh, the public is on our side, so let's not like just come out of the gate negotiating against ourselves either. Of course, of course. And you know, this is this is a drastic time for drastic solutions. And like, let's not start with a negotiated position. <laughs> let's start right. with something bold. Let's start with something liberating. And then, you know, if we have to negotiate, we have to negotiate, but we should never really start out with that. But again, like I'm actually not opposed to some sort of time limit if it gets us to a better place than we are today. There are three things that people listening can do right now to help shore up abortion access. The first one is learn about pills. 20 minutes after the decision in Dobbs came down, I went to the Supreme Court and outside the Supreme Court were hundreds of people protesting the decision. I took boxes, uh, that white boxes, like a small white box about the size of an index card that said abortion pills. And I passed out abortion pill boxes that have information inside about how to get abortion pills. And people were recoiling. These are people who are protesting the decision, people who are holding signs that say fuck SCOTUS, like people who are very angry, were very afraid of, of medication abortion. And I had a I had all these signs. Signs went like hotcakes. I ran out of signs in like five minutes. Abortion pill boxes, almost no one would take them. And so I think there's a still a real stigma around medication abortion. So ed educate yourself about medication abortion. Find out where to get the pills. Um, like I said, uh, aid access, uh, plan C pills. I need an A is a place that you can find out where to get abortions. And so I think people just need to educate themselves. Uh, abortion pills are just two things, mifepristone and misoprostol. You take them and you have the abortion at home. 
The second thing I'd say is is support independent clinics. So even in places where abortion is not legal anymore, the clinics will have to move to the outlying states. And, and that's very difficult. And a lot of these clinics are repositioning and opening clinics on borders of states that, that are making abortion illegal to try to make it as easy as possible. And those clinics need your support. And those are not Planned Parenthood clinics. Most clinics that provide abortion care later in, in the pregnancy and also in these really difficult places are not Planned Parenthood. They're independent clinics. So another place where people should go is keep our clinics, keep our clinics, uh, supports independent clinics. Um, then there's also uh, the National Abortion Federation, uh, which is also uh, supports independent clinics. So I would say abortion pills, learn about them and, and support independent clinics. The third thing I will say is funds. Until we fix this mess, <laughs> until we get a law in place, until we can unpack the Supreme Court, which is going to take a long time, people today are going to need access to abortion. The places that support them are abortion funds. So the third thing I'll say is support abortion funds. There's a different fund in every state. So you can just Google your state. And there's an abortion fund no matter where you live. And that gives money and support. And like I said, travel, child care, et cetera, to people in your state, whether or not they can actually get the abortion in your state. Kate, thank you for always taking our call when we, a couple of dudes who host a political podcast, are like, hey, um, we want to talk about abortion. And that's what you're like, what you do really, really well, among many other things. Would you please come and do that? And, uh, and then you do it and you knock it out of the park. And it's like the episodes that are the best and that frankly are the least work for the two of us. So thank <laughs> you for doing all the work here. I really appreciate it. And thanks you're, for everything else you're doing. You're welcome for woman splaining. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you for woman explaining this to me. <laughs> You're just helping uh, the audience understand that sometimes sure. women can also be the experts on the things that matter to us most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just me going, hey, sometimes talk to a girl. <laughs> <laughs> hey, bold new idea, everyone. Yeah. You heard it here first. All right. As you listen to this, one last before it comes out plug uh, for uh, my book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Um, this episode comes out on Thursday. So it comes out four days before the book actually comes out. So the chances are when you're listening to this, it's either out or about to be out. So, you know, look, if you haven't pre-ordered it, pre-order it. I've given you a lot of different reasons, you know, that the royalties for me go to a good cause, all that stuff. Here's if you if you're still on the fence, here's what I'll tell you is that if you're if you're a semi-regular listener to this podcast, you're probably like the people who are very kind and stop and talk to me and kind of feel like you know me. And I appreciate that because I feel that way about podcasts I listen to. And I'll just tell you, like, if you're interested in knowing me, you should read this book because anybody who uh, reads this book, those are the people who are actually going to know me because there's a lot uh, more to me and it's in this book. So I'd appreciate it if, if you'd uh, buy it and read it. You can get it wherever you get books or... Ideally, you go to invisiblestormbook.com 
All right. Now, with that said, the voicemail, uh, which obviously we're listening to your voicemails. We just listened to a bunch and responded to them. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. Or you can email us, m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. As always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is Majority54 on Twitter. Kate's Twitter is at Kate underscore Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y underscore E-S-Q. So that, I'm just going to spell it out. At K-A-T-E underscore K-E-L-L-Y underscore E-S-Q. And you can listen to Ordinary Equality, her podcast, season four. Uh, they're in season four now. You can listen to it right now wherever you get this podcast. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and the Desua Agmanile. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.